Welcome to Build a Career in Data Science. I'm your host, Emily Robinson. And I'm also your host, Jacqueline Nolas. This podcast is a data download into all the non-technical knowledge and skills you need to succeed in a data science career. We finished up season one, where we did every chapter from our book, and now we're doing a fun bonus episode. But before we get into that, uh, our book is called also called Build a Career in Data Science, and you can buy it at bestbook.cool and get 40% off with the code build book four zero percent simple. And even though season one's over doesn't mean that book is any less fun. So go ahead and grab it. <laughs> Jacqueline, tell us why we're here today. What's this episode about? So this is a very somber episode called Oops, <gasps> We're Both Unemployed. <laughs> yes. No, we, uh, we, you know, this podcast, we've been on a bit of hiatus, as you may have noticed, but Emily and I found ourselves both in an unusual predicament in that neither of us on the same week had jobs. <laughs> And we're like, oh, that's an interesting thing we hadn't had happen to us previously at the same time during the making of this podcast. So we thought, since so many other people are also there finding themselves right now without jobs, we would talk about how it's going for us. Yes, yes. And uh, I think the first thing I guess was talk a little bit about the circumstance that led to it, because it is a little bit different for each of us. Uh, so for me, uh, I was laid off along with most of the data science team. Uh, Warby back in the beginning of August. Uh, and like most layoffs, it, you know, you get an email or a notification that morning, and then your laptop is wiped and your Slack and email are done by that afternoon. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty sudden change. Yeah, so I did not have that. I did not get laid off. I had an amicable like it wasn't fire or anything. I was an amicable, but like, oh, okay. Um, I'm gonna start looking for new opportunities. Everything's great. I really like the company I was there. I think they really liked me. You know, it was a it was a very amicable thing, but it just was like, a, okay, this is a great point in my life to find a new position, and I was gonna go do that. Um, yeah, and I think okay, as a preface before we get too into the weeds of how things are going for us, I do want to point out something, which is that which is probably gonna be a recurring theme throughout this episode. As you might be like, Jacqueline. Emily, these people, these people are senior data scientists with long tenured careers and podcasts and books and all that stuff. So a couple points on that. We are still having to struggle with this too. And a lot of the stuff that we had to, we are having to go through may be the same as you. A lot of it might be different. Um, so take everything we say with a grain of salt of like, oh yeah, these people do still have a different perspective than you might. You might also be a person with a podcast and book. I don't know. But you know, you know, you might be in a different point in your career. So someone we say may land differently. So I would say anything we say, you know, just consider the, the viewpoint, the, the biased narrator perspective coming in here. And so the point of this episode is less to tell you, here are eight tips that will get you the job from us people who are different than you. And instead more just like, look, here's an angle you might not normally get to see, which is someone in our positions looking for jobs. And so we're just kind of being vulnerable and putting that out there and not trying to tell you necessarily how to do anything. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's, that is a really important point. So it will be much more of um, you know, sort of our personal stories and our journeys. Um, like Jacqueline said, you know, this is, we are each all, you know, unique snowflakes and hopefully you find something interesting or useful or at the very least you're like, oh, this can, you know, maybe if you're, you know, this could happen to, uh, like Jacqueline was saying, like people who are more senior, have experience, can be laid off, can decide like, you know, this job I'm at is no longer really a good fit and leave without having another one lined up. And so we hope we hope this is uh, maybe helpful, but at least interesting. Yeah, uh, that's right. Listening. Maybe helpful, definitely interesting. Like <laughs> it. So to, let's talk about your perspective, Emily. So did you have any idea you were about to be laid off? And how did that feel when they told you? <laughs> um, so I wasn't totally taken aback because, uh, you know, Warby's a public company. And, you know, and they, you could sort of see, right, like the, in general, right, a lot of companies have been laying people off. So also, you know, I feel like everyone's just kind of aware, like this may be a thing that happens. And often public companies, if they do it, it's the week of their earnings call. And that was indeed the week that we were laid off. So I was sort of like, okay, okay, if, it, if it's going to happen, if there are going to be layoffs, it's probably going to happen like this coming week. So I wasn't totally taken aback. I did not necessarily expect like, you know, me to be laid off or like most of my team. So it was definitely still a surprise. But I also have been through layoffs before, although I haven't been affected. And so again, I was sort of able to be like, okay, if it happens this way, it's going to happen where it's like, you've got a couple hours, right? And like, that's, that's it. I mean, we, you know, I work remote, so I wasn't like physically in, in the building or whatever, but I kind of knew it would be like, 
all right, you know, one minute you're, you work for a company and the next it's, uh, it's, it's done. And they're like, here's your, you know, uh, and you're, you're on your way, you know, out the, the metaphorical door if you work remote. Did you get the, like, meeting on your Outlook calendar that just I said did. chat? Oh, no, I you did. did? And did you know well, what it was? There was, an, there was an email beforehand being like there are going to be some layoffs. Um, so, yeah, okay. I, I pretty much knew what it was. I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure this is it. They sort of said, like, oh, you'll be notified, you know. And, again, that's sort of usually how it is. Like, you know, if you're one of the ones impacted, you'll have, like, a, you know, individual meeting. And otherwise, you'll have, like, an all hands or whatever later that day. So I, I had a few hours warning in that case, right, between the email and having the meeting um, and then a little bit after it as well. But, you know, it's just so it's so quick, right? It's just yeah. very, you know. Um, Did you have like a feeling of like you woke up the next day and you're just suddenly like listless of like, I don't have to go sit in my desk. Like, 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 surely it's like suddenly the sky is a different color. Like everything is different now. <laughs> Did you have that feeling? I don't know if I had exactly that. I would say it took a little while to hit me, right? I think at first it was a little bit like, oh, maybe, you know, it's like almost like I'm on staycation or whatever, yeah. right? And it's not like I'll still go back to it. Um, or if not, if not that, that, you know, um, also feeling like it's like, okay, I like left the company, but you know, it's still, it's still going on. It, well, obviously the company is still going on without me, but like the team is not, right? Because most yeah. of the team was laid off. So I would say that was also like a weird a weird feeling um and not getting I think the, one of the things about being laid off and like to be fair I'm sort of like this is not maybe my problem but I know some folks but it was a bit of a bummer of like a lot of work that I was doing that other people were doing right is kind of like we didn't have the notice to wrap any of that up right if I had if I had chosen to leave you know usually you spend the last two weeks you try to you know and I, I tried as best as I could to like document stuff on the way but it's it's sad it's like there was all this stuff that you're looking forward to doing um, you know, and, and hopefully if you like your job that you think is important work, um, and you just sort of are like, well, I hope I left it in a good enough state that if someone chooses to continue on that they can, but you don't, you don't really know, like there's no official handoff plan that you made. Yes. I'll just add to that when I've been in those situations where like, you know, I'm a person, I like to think of myself as someone who puts their heart and soul into their work, whatever you're working so hard, this project and suddenly it's canceled or like, it just stops being a thing. The moment of like, oh Yeah. All of this could just be pretend. We don't know. You know, like the like, like, oh, that thing I was working really hard. Like, is it, is it like, does it really matter? Is that what yeah, you Yeah. And it's not like, a, I feel like a failure, more like, a, oh, yeah, I take, a, I make a lot of assumptions when I consider whether something's important. And one of those assumptions is this mm. thing will even be used once, you know, and sometimes it never gets used. Yeah. And you, but you got. <laughs> I don't know how much you can talk about it. You got a little like you got a little cushion from your company, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, and and most uh most places have um when they do layoffs, you know, usually a lot of places offer severance agreements. So in some uh if you Google like some of the tech companies recently you can see is like a couple months um is is typical, maybe some extension of health insurance, like they pay for the Cobra premium, something like that. Some places do job placement services. So it, it it varies some, but most, I don't know that, uh, unless a company is going under, which is, might happen with a startup, I don't know that I've really seen anyone who doesn't, who doesn't get any severance, right? I do know some folks who their company went under and like basically like went bankrupt and there was no money to give anyone. Then your severance is keep the laptop. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But I don't know anyone who, you know, who's laid off from a, you know, still functioning like a, a running company and, and didn't get some some money. So yeah. Um, and the other thing I had, which was helpful, was I was doing uh, some expert witness work. Uh, so like a side gig consulting thing that, mm. yeah, I had started um, back in February and was working like on the side. And it just sort of coincidentally happened to be a busy period um, these last two months, August and September, uh, when I was laid off. So it and, and that pays, of course. Um, so that that definitely helped some. So it put me in a, in a better position where I haven't been um, actively looking for jobs and instead of sort of like doing that work and not taking a break. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So I am unlike you in that <laughs> when I have a moment where suddenly I don't have another job lined up and I got to do that, I go into fight or flight panic mode of like, <laughs> oh my God, I need to get this new job as fast as possible. So when I realized that I was going to be looking for a new position, my job went from work work to finding new work work where I would I mean I don't know if I put 40 hours a week into it but I mm -hmm. definitely every day was like making phone calls and applying and like panic LinkedIn which I think we've talked about on this podcast a panic LinkedIn to applying to every single position and 
Yeah, I don't know. It probably would have been good for my mental health to have a little bit more of a, I'm just going to kick back for a few weeks. But I did not do that. Um, You know, I didn't necessarily do that right away. My step one is, oh my God, okay, I'm going to find a new job as quickly as I can. So, but I thought we talked about that you did have a day or two each week where you didn't have like interviews at least. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and this is something that I hadn't, I really, so I did for like the first two weeks, let's say the first two weeks, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to apply to every position. If someone emails me being like, hey, we want to do a phone screen with you, I'd be like, okay, tomorrow, as fast as possible. And what that ended up with was, yeah, every day I would have like two 30 minute calls, four hours apart, which basically meant, and because you need to be in a place with good audio and sometimes Zoom, it basically meant I couldn't leave the house that day. Like, not really. And that was miserable. And then I realized the trick, which you were just talking about, which is what I started doing. Actually, I did two things. One is I started using Calendly so that when people be like, hey, when are you available? I would email them a link to my Outlook calendar. And so I let them pick. But then on my Outlook calendar, I would just block off days. And I don't think that made my process any slower, but it did compress all of those phone calls into a couple days a week. But I only, and that was way better because at least I have a couple days of not doing work stuff or looking for work stuff. But I only did that after like three weeks of scattering the interviews everywhere and finding myself miserable because I couldn't like go out in the world. So Jacqueline, you mentioned that, you know, you're feeling pretty anxious. You kind of go go right into like the, the job search. Um, so one thing I want to talk about is like, how did it... Because I've been dealing with this myself. Um, like, how does it feel like, I don't know, telling people you're unemployed, right? Like, do you feel, I feel like there's less of a stigma than maybe there used to be. I don't know if folks like take sabbaticals or with the layoffs happening, you know, some, you know, people realize it might not, you know, like very good people can be without a job, but it, it's, I don't know, at least for me, it still feels like maybe for some folks there's a stigma or if there's not actually a stigma, you maybe feel like it. So how does it, how does it feel identity wise? Like, how did you talk about you know, not not having a job either with, you know, I don't know if like friends or family or just feel about it. So, okay. So I think, I don't know, this maybe is a where you are in your career thing, but like, I think, you know, when I was more junior or maybe 10 years ago, I don't know if those are correlated. I used to think if someone was unemployed, it's because they got fired for being bad at their job. And that is actually a very small sliver of the many reasons you may not have a job. And I think if someone says like, oh, you're unemployed, like, oh, there's a three month gap on your resume. Like, I think the idea that that means you are then not good at your job, maybe doesn't mean as much as it used to, to your point. Or maybe it's just that I'm more senior. So I have more of a pedigree. I don't know. But I will say in particular, I feel like there was like a month right around when like I was leaving, there was a month in July where like every LinkedIn post I saw was someone else being like, I got laid off or this company's laying off or we're sorry there's those layoffs. So the idea, like I feel like I happened to get lucky because I feel like there was this huge cover of everyone was getting laid off this summer, it seemed like on LinkedIn. So I didn't necessarily have like a shamey guilt about it. I could understand how if you got laid off and you're like, you and your head could rationalize it of like, oh, if I was better at my job, I wouldn't have gotten laid off. But I think that is definitely not true. Um, which is, I think lots of people get laid off for lots of reasons. As you kind of pointed out, teams get disbanded, projects get canceled. You could have been the best person in the world at data science and you're working on a project that is part of a product that the whole product got canceled, right? Like there's so many reasons why something cannot work out that are unrelated to you that I think it's kind of like, you you kind of got to like, un. it's like a some sort of weird imposter syndrome, but it's like reverse, like I'm the most, like, oh, I'm the reason it all fell apart. Like, no, there are a lot of reasons it fell apart. So that's kind of the logic I have trained myself to think in. And so that's why this did not bother me. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say for me, so I was, I haven't posted on LinkedIn just because I'm not looking for a job right now. I'm posting on LinkedIn feels a little more like appropriate when I'm yeah. looking for a job, but I did share on Twitter um, you know, like the day or two after that, that I was laid off as like part of broader layoffs. But so I kind of felt comfortable there. But, and I got a lot of really nice messages. But that being said, when I've had like, I don't know, acquaintances ask, like my neighbor was like, you know, oh, how's your how's work going? You know, what, I, what I've said is like, oh, you know, I've left Warby and I'm doing consulting now. And it's, it's true. I have both left Warby um, or was left by Warby. Uh, and I am doing like consulting work. But obviously, it's not the, the, the full truth and I guess it's just like it feels I don't know if it's a stigma but like partly it's like I don't always want to get into it and I'm like I don't yes. right I don't want to be like oh it's laid off and I'm like oh how do you do you poor thing or whatever it's like I don't need your pity yeah uh, no absolutely <laughs> as you're talking about it, I was thinking in my head well how would I handle these scenarios and yes I'm not ashamed of it but boy I don't want to have my neighbor tell me no don't worry it'll be yeah like I don't need that from <laughs> strangers or whatever so I think what I do is like generally if people like how's work I'd be like good <laughs> 
I'll just not mention it. <laughs> or like if someone's like, oh, like blah, blah, blah. I might be like, no, I probably just wouldn't bring it up. Yeah. I don't know. Which is, I guess, to say, I think there's a very big difference between I am ashamed that mm-hmm. I don't have a job and I don't feel like getting into this with you. you know? <laughs> exactly. Like, <laughs> quick interaction while I'm walking the dog. Yeah. Which is not, again, not to say that if you're feeling ashamed that you do not have a job, that is an invalid feeling that is totally reasonable. Our society puts a lot of weird pressure on you yeah. to have a job. But also, like, you don't owe anyone anything, including your neighbor walking the dog. Yeah. Yeah. I also think sometimes, like, uh, older family members as well. Like I've had that a little bit. It's like folks who, again, I do think it's changed over time. Like the the sort of thoughts and like partly it's because the workplace has changed, right? It's like, you know, more people used to, it feels like, you know, stay at one company for their whole careers. Maybe there were pensions, these other things. It's just this, I, yeah, so I don't know. There's just like worry of like, oh my gosh, will you like, well, what's it like to be unemployed? Will you find a new job? You know, I've never been through it. Um, but yeah, I, I will, I have been hardened of, I've seen, you know, in, in terms of that anxiety about like about, about the finding the next job is for the folks I know who have who did sort of start looking right away after layoffs, including at other companies. Even it's sort of a weird thing. It's like a weird economy where like a lot of layoffs are happening, but also people are still finding jobs fairly quickly. Yeah, right. Unemployment is extremely low, right? Like, yeah, I think that's a little different. And also, if we're talking about what do you do when your family members judgmentally ask you, so what you know, judge you for being late, like that's a whole nother pod. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, whoo-wee. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. And yeah. maybe I also feel like they're. Um... Oh, I will also say so. So a podcast I like to listen to is sort of like on financial advice. He talks to couples like he will. He will sometimes say like he he gives advice, but he's also like will tell them and tell the audience like you know, something like that he's a big proponent of therapy. And so I also agree with that. Like there are some things that, um, you know, if you find yourself like really, you know, trouble talking to people about it or a stigma or whatever, I will just give a plug for therapy. And some things are best addressed with someone trained uh, to, you know, help you work through uh, 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 your emotions or, uh, you know, uh, what do I call it? Like, tr- not quite trauma, but um, I guess uh, 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 holdovers from childhood, maybe, I don't know, or society. So I'd say one, fair. Two, I could probably summarize half of our book and podcast of, oh, you think this is a data problem, but actually it's a human emotions problem. <laughs> talk to a therapist. Like, that's, that's a lot that's, of what we talk about That's here. true. That's yeah. true. But I feel like we didn't say that in the book, which maybe we, well, I don't know if we, we should have. We should have if but, we didn't. But I think yeah. we, because I don't think we ever said that, but you're right. Like, we have a whole chapter on failure, right? And part of it is, like, some logistics, and there's some advice of, like, okay, if it fails for this reason, here's how to learn from it, or here's who to talk to. But a lot of it's, yeah, it's, like, the emotions. Um and yeah, so so I don't think we ever have said it. I don't think we said it in our book. I'm not sure we said it on the podcast. So if not, like, therapy. plug for therapy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so, the, so in the second half of this podcast that we'll switch to in just a moment, um, we'll talk a little bit more than nitty gritty details of like how job search and stuff's going. And uh, spoiler alert, I actually just accepted a job offer. And so we'll talk Ooh. about that whole process. All right. That sounds good. And so with that, shall we go to our break? Let's do it. Trade deals negotiated between parties, wars between countries, social media, all of these make up our modern lives and can be represented as graphs. Hello, I'm Jacqueline Nolis. Join me on my weekly podcast, Graph Theory. In Graph Theory, we explore the big ideas behind mathematical networks, nodes connected by edges, which can be used to express the complex components of our lives. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Jacqueline, some people are going to go out looking for that podcast. I've listened to a lot of podcasts while unemployed, and in every podcast, they advertise another podcast, and every podcast sounds like a TED Talk now. Well, I'm sure people appreciate it. I've definitely uh, heard from some folks that the sponsors are their favorite part of the podcast, and I will say it's all all Jacqueline. It's all you, Jacqueline. Uh, So, yeah, so let's, let's get into your job search, Jacqueline. Where do you want, where do you want to start? So yes, I have, and then I don't know, this is borderline disingenuous that I said at the beginning of the episode that I'm unemployed because it's true. I'm unemployed right now, but I will not be in mere days. Um, but anyways, so I would say probably what middle of end, middle of July, end of July, I started job hunting. And so ultimately it like took 
two months, 10 weeks, something like that to get the job, which I don't know if I was expecting. I don't know what I expected, but I don't know if someone told me, Mm. like, I I didn't know going in, it was going to be that. So I'm just prefacing that with like, that's how long it took me. Um, Maybe that's longer than I would have expected. And, and I actually kept fairly good notes on how many places I went to, what the vibes were and things like that. So I actually have a lot of interesting data we can parse through on kind of my process, which again, mm-hmm. prefaces with blah, blah, blah. I'm a principal level, whatever that your mileage may vary. <laughs> but like, I actually looking back was even a little surprised at my numbers. Yeah. So, so what are, what are those numbers, Jacqueline? And did you make one of those like Sankey flow charts? I've seen those on like data science Reddit. Okay, here's another thing. I've seen other people do that on the internet. And I think those people are just secretly bragging at all the places they interviewed <laughs> with. And that's not what this is. I'm not going to be bragging to you at all the places I interviewed with. This is going to be very high level. I'm not going to talk about the types of companies. It's not me bragging. Mm. It's me just giving things that I find are fascinating. Okay. Okay, so preface this, please don't take the zealous brags. Anyway, so I applied to 75 places. 75 places. Right. I think before I started, I would not have guessed that it would take applying to that many places before I got a job offer. Yeah. Wait, before before we go on, I feel like in our in our book, we usually say like, you know, like it's it's not necessarily a numbers game. Um, you yeah. know, as as in like maybe spending more time on fewer places, whether you know, looking to talk to someone there or places you're excited about rather than this, like the LinkedIn spamming. So like, I feel like you didn't have 75 super personalized, like yeah. well investigated referred places. Well, so what, I, I mean, what was it just, we always disagreed well, or? Well, I applied to 75 jobs, but I would say, I don't think for the most part, I applied to jobs I wouldn't want. And I think sometimes when you think okay. shock and approach, you apply literally anything that shows up on LinkedIn. And like, I was discerning in the sense that if there was no chance I would want that, if there was like a, I don't know, mm-hmm. I would say I need at least a 50 to 70% chance I would want the job before I applied to it. And so I don't know, maybe that's still a shotgun that I ended up with 75. Also, that wasn't 75 in one day. That was like 75 over the course sure. of two months. Um, sure. Yeah. And did you do any customizing for, for any of them or was all just like whatever the easiest way, like your same standard resume, LinkedIn, easy to apply? Okay, so I will actually preface this with I... My, my last job, I was technically in a product role. I was doing product development work. And so I was not sure if I wanted to do data science or product development work during this job. So I had two versions of my resume. So it was that, like, I had to literally be applying to two totally disparate types of jobs if I had a second version. Otherwise, everything was the same. Now, we've talked about this on this podcast that I don't actually really make cover letters for the most part. So I think that's normally where you customize it more. But I will say in this job interview loop, what I did do is if there was a company where I thought there was something special that they should know about me, they may not pick up on the resume of like, oh, they're doing a lot of um, they're doing a lot of simulation. I'm like, oh, actually, my background's in simulation or whatever. You know, like I would write a paragraph as a cover letter and drop that in. But like, that's the most and only maybe one in 10 companies mm. or like one in five. I actually left a note like that. Okay. So given that it probably like you did spend obviously time looking through job boards, you know doesn't feel like it would have been too hard to figure out which of your two resumes to send but otherwise it doesn't sound like oh yes yeah, yeah it doesn't sound like you spent a, a, a ton of time um on this no i don't think i spent a ton of time not on the step of applying i will say yeah that's the step of applying okay okay yeah. so i applied to 75 places half of the places just never gave me any indication of every, anything <gasps> right which is like don't they know who you are Jacqueline? do you know who i am no <laughs> um literally nothing beyond like we got your resume no you're rejected no nothing i just never heard back and mm-hmm. no i like at first i'm like that seems like a lot but then it's like okay i'm like that seems like a plot a lot but i'm like i don't know sometimes companies put up job postings and then they yeah. don't actually want the job or they have a hiring freeze or whatever so i'm like i don't know so okay so half never responded to me 15 percent responded back just to tell me no um, which is, okay, now we're going back a step. I said, I only, those 75 jobs, I really only applied to ones where I thought I would be a reasonably good fit. I went and looked of those 15% that literally, they, they got my resume and they're like, nope, we're good. At least half of those, I'm like, literally on paper, I should be exactly the candidate you want. Like, like I look at that resume, I look, or your job posting, I look at me, <laughs> I'm exactly what you're asking for. And you just blind said no to me. Um, which is just to say, if you get one of these blind rejections, people like, I don't know, I literally couldn't make my resume more tailored for that job. And they still blind, no, no human involved in the loop. So I thought that that surprised me a little. How do you know there's, I mean, there's no human who talked to you, but 
like it could have been a human that reviewed the resume, okay, yeah, right? sure. Not, yeah. But probably <laughs> looked at it for 10 seconds and said no. Right. Or like, again, maybe the job posting was canceled. I don't know. So 15% said nothing or said explicitly, no, we're good. Yeah. 10% did a phone screen with me and then said, no, we're good. Right. So 10%, and this is where it starts to become work. So it's 10% set up a 30 minute call to learn about me and talk about the job. And then at the end of the 30 minute call, they're like, no, we're good. Um, and then, okay, so that leaves, I'm just doing the math on it. So that's 70. Okay. So three, that's three quarters of the jobs, three quarters of the jobs never replied, said no, or talked to me and said no. Okay. And, and for the ones that did talk to you, did they give reasons for why they said no? Yeah. Usually they would give you, I mean, usually it was pretty obvious either like, oh, the pay alignment wasn't right. Or, um, or they're clearly looking mm. for someone who does more analytics and I do more decision sides. Like, like usually it was in the phone conversation. They'd say something like, ah, you know, we're not really sure quite. There was one company <laughs> where it really did sound like a great fit. And then they emailed me a day later being like, no, we're good. And I actually did ask them. I thought about this. I'm like, should I do this? I, I emailed them being like, hey, I'm just surprised. It sounded like on the phone we were a good fit. As a good fit for this position, can you just give me a little indication? And they said, oh yeah, we're looking for someone with a little more skills and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, that's fair. I really do not have any skills and blah, blah, blah. So so that leaves 25% of the companies. Okay. So of those that I actually did the phone interview with, I would say about half, or sorry, that I did the full loop yeah. with, I'd say probably two thirds. I like, but like after one round of the interview loop, I'm like, okay, this is not a good fit for me for whatever reason. So I said no to probably like 15 to 20% of the companies. I said mm. no. So you said no. And then there were some that during the actual beyond the first phone screen, they start talking to me and they're like, no, we're good. Um, that's kind of, I think this is something where, because I have a lot of experience, I generally do better mm. in that part of the interview phase. Like, I think I do worse in the beginning because I just don't fit into as many roles because I'm pretty specialized. But once it gets to the interview, usually if they start interviewing me, it's pretty good. But even then there were companies where I thought I'd been a great fit. They're like, no, actually we're good. And then finally, I've, out of 75 job or applications, I ended up getting three offers and then I picked one from there. So, which I guess to say, you look at that, it's like, that's a lot of funneling down of like, whew, it's not easy. And so I do think there is, maybe this is me going back on what we said in our book. There is a certain amount of like, especially during layoff seasons, like there's an amount of like, that might be the perfect fit of a job for you, but they're having a hiring freeze. Mm. So apply to three companies roughly like that. And then one of them will not be having a hiring freeze. So I guess one question I have is, is, you know, I can imagine for some folks, right, that saying no during the interview process would be challenging when you're unemployed, right? Like, <laughs> continue, like I don't know how to say it otherwise than like continue to have standards, right? It's like, how do you, because like, I don't know, did you ever have any feelings of like, oh, I just got to like, I got to take what I can get or like I need something right now of just being like, I, you know, I can't say no. What You know, I'm not in a position to do this. I just have to let them say no to me. Emily, I had that fear every day. <laughs> like, every <laughs> day I'm like, again. am I going to find anything? <laughs> like every day I had that constant fear. I had the fear of not, um, I'm just, I'm going to be too picky and I'm going to reject mm-hmm. too many companies. But honestly, I would say most of the companies that rejected, it was like a serious enough red flag that mm-hmm. I'm like, listen, I've, I've failed to avoid this red flag before and then been miserable at a company. And like, we can talk about some of the red flags I saw in the bo- in the interviews, but like, there was like, no, okay, this is like a, this is going to be a problem. Like I, like I can't a good conscience put myself through several more years of not having a good time because I didn't act on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, that was hard. <laughs> like it would have been easy. Like, like it was, it was, it was hard to do that at like a macro level of like, man, I'm not accepting. Like, like I had the panic. What if I don't accept anything? But on each individual interview, I'm like, no way this is going to be right for me. I really do have to say no to this. Okay. So it was a big enough sort of like red flag. And you, and I think that also is where your like years of experience help too, right? As you've been at a lot of different companies, you like you said, you've had these, you, you, you hadn't seen these red flags before and then you, you got burned by them. Um, so I think that definitely helps because you, you know more what you want or what, and what you don't want. Yeah. And in fact, and some of the, I'm saying all huge red flags, but it wasn't necessarily like a huge red flag of like, this is a terrible company. It's totally toxic. Some of it is like, I personally wouldn't like that job, but other people would. And mm. there were some jobs that I rejected on that point. And this is actually, I think a very fascinating thing. There are jobs I point where I'm like, I'm rejecting this because I know I wouldn't like this. Where five years ago, I would have been like, that sounds awesome. I want to take that. In fact, mm. I will, t- I'll be more explicit here. So one of the, like one of the companies I was interviewing with, they were like, 
looking for some of their first data scientists, and they weren't really sure yet exactly what the data science at the company is going to be, which is like, you know, we talk about on this podcast, being the first data scientist and trying to figure out what problems you're solving in the first place. That can be really fascinating. And earlier in my career, I would have loved that. But now, as a little bit more seasoned, I'm like, listen, if I go to a company, work there for a year, and it turns out, ah, oh, they don't really have any good data science problems, like, that that would kind of frustrate me in a way today where five years ago I would have been like, oh, that's a good mm-hmm. learning experience. And I learned how to vet a problem. And so like, that's not a good fit for me, but someone earlier in their career would have loved that. And I think that to your point, maybe there's like a self-selection thing where the earlier you are in your career, the more likely you are to take something and then you learn it's a red flag. So you get pickier, but then you get more <laughs> skills. So you get more applications and, you know, like, like, I don't know, maybe it nuts out. Right. And, and in some cases, it's not necessarily a red flag. It's just not a good fit for you where, like you said, like five years ago, it would have maybe been a good fit because yeah. then you, you hadn't done that before and you wanted to learn. Yes. So it's not it's not just like you said, like all oh, the red flags have to be like, oh, my gosh, this place is so toxic or they have no idea what it's doing. It's just like, oh, this doesn't fit with what I want to do either because I've done it before or I just know I don't want to do it. Exactly. Um, here's another thing, an interesting thing I learned by keeping data on this, which is Pretty much every company that there was any chance I'd be interested in responded within two weeks at most, which is to say, if you apply mm. to a place and you don't hear back in two weeks, according to my data, if you apply to a place and you don't hear back in two weeks, that's probably a sign you won't hear at all, which I think is maybe reasonable because if you imagine most companies understand that they're competing with other companies, so like they won't want to sit on people for three months. I had one company three months after I applied and after I accepted this job offer be like, hey, we're ready to do the phone screen. And I'm like, no, you're not. But I think I, I, yeah, which is I think I think two weeks as like a rough end point of like, listen, if you haven't heard back in two weeks, that is probably you're unlikely to hear back at all. Yeah. And so did you... Once you started getting to the stage, right, where you were doing phone screens and maybe like second round interviews or final, did you keep applying to new places or at some point did you stop? I kind of did in waves. Like I applied to a bunch of places, then I started doing the phone screens and things like that. And then I could kind of feel like, okay, this feels like some of these, the, the, the probability of mm-hmm. taking one of these is low enough that I'm going to do another wave. And then probably by the time I was doing like okay. four, let's say like I had like four concurrent full rounds of interviews and I'm like, okay, surely one of these will work out. And indeed one did. Um, but it wasn't like I did one huge blast on waited, especially because like a lot of the companies that I ended up being interested in, like they didn't have their best job posting up in the first week I was looking. So like, I think it is worthwhile to mm. keep applying until maybe pretty near the end. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned you were you know, fairly busy. You've got all the interview stuff. So one thing I want to ask you about, because I, I have a feeling you're going to have a hot take on it, is um, like studying. So what I mean is yeah. before, <laughs> so whether that... Um, technical stuff, like I know folks who do leak code or SQL practice or, um, you know, so something on the technical side or whatever, you know, there are some books out there that have, uh, including ours, have some like interview questions to practice or whether it's practicing like behavioral type stuff, right? Refreshing your memory, like, oh, what will I answer when someone asks me, like, tell me about a time when you had a conflict with a coworker, right? Did you do any of that, any of that, that prep work? Okay, before I answer that question, I would like to pass it back to you for a second. And we just clarify. So I've just about accepted a job. You haven't started looking no. for jobs yet, right? No. No. And do you think you're going to study? <laughs> so yes, kind of for two reasons. Yeah, two reasons at least. So one is my plan, like I said, is to take a little bit of a break. Yeah. So I feel like, okay, like things may be like, you know, a, a little more kind of you know, I'll probably do some side projects or whatever, but, you know, more more rusty than if I was, you know, using these every day. Um, and the other part is, even if I had gone straight from one job to another, there are certain things like, I don't know, I, I often don't use a lot of SQL directly because I'm using it through, you know, dplyr or whatever, right, um, dbplyr. And so maybe I'll be like, okay, you know, I got to brush up on that, right, because I don't, you know, but I know a lot of place to interview or I have to brush up on, whatever, like common, you know, things that I can know within, you know, um, you know, maybe like a week or not a week or two of like full time, right, but, you know, a week or two. So, so yes, I will say that I had sort of planned to be like, okay, also brush up also the behavioral stuff, right, as it's refresh my memory, like, oh, yeah, what were the projects I was working on, you know, at that point, maybe two years ago that I might want to talk about. Yes, okay, so you raise a lot of good points. I'm going to try and capture as many of those as I can. So one, um, there were some companies that had like leadish code kind of things, but, but the companies that were all good, like if, like if they had something in SQL, I'd be like, well, I haven't used SQL and whatever, but I know how to do it in R with dplyr or pandas. They would be like, okay, sure. Just show me the group buys or whatever in pandas, whatever. Right. Like any company that'd be like, no, you have to show it in SQL. Like a computer is going to read this, not a human. You have to show it in SQL. 
that's a huge red flag for me. And this is, again, because I'm more senior or whatever, yeah. but the idea that, like, a company is be like, we're not even going to look at you until a computer decides if you're a good first. It's like, oh, that company doesn't have a good understanding of how data science works if they think a computer is a good metric. And I actually had one company that tried to pull that on me, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to complete this loop because I think that's pretty messed up that you want me to do this before you even talk to a human. That's me using my privilege as someone who's very senior. I was going to say, I, <laughs> yeah. I will say, for if you're more yeah. junior... That might be a tough thing to do, right? Is right. I don't think it's uncommon to have hacker rank or these other things. Maybe after the higher, like maybe after the first interview, but yeah, you may not be able to get out of doing that. And most companies will have some sort of technical screen. Right. But I think the good companies, and I'm talking like well, like renowned, like I'm talking about like reasonable companies of startup to huge size. The companies that were good would have a human spend an hour doing a paired programming with you. Mm. Like they do it in front of you. And if you're like, yeah. listen, I don't remember SQL. Could I show Pandas? They'd be like, yeah, sure. Right. Like it's it's not so much about like, again, if you're more junior, it may be, like, just to law of large numbers, you want to apply as many places as you can. Like, yeah, you can kind of do those tests. But I think the companies that you're more likely to want to work at are the ones who are going to be a little bit more flexible in understanding. Like, just we talked about in the interview in our book, like, the companies that understand that it's not just a yes, no, black, white, but more want to think about your thinking, they're not going to care if you remember uh, a sub-query in SQL, you know? Yeah, and it's true. I will share one. One uh, interview story from a past job search, which was I was applying for a company and they had me like do basically just like a for loop, but it was in like, I don't do for loops very often. It was in a Google Doc um, twos, right? So it doesn't have any of the like, you know, the, t the spacing was all messed up, right? Anyway, so the point being, I feel like I did not do very well in this build because it was like an environment I wasn't used to. Like, again, I don't, I usually use Per or like Map or other stuff and I, I didn't have now maybe I would say like, hey, can I do this? Like, here's how I would do this. Like, not, I think they literally asked, do it in a for loop. And I'd be like, okay, here's how I would do this instead. But anyway, the point is I did pass that, which surprised me. Um, so I will say sometimes like if you do these things as well, like the, the um, like you said, I think that was a human judging, like, okay, she seemed like a little uncomfortable, but that was probably the environment. And like, all right, you know, I, I don't think she literally can't do a for loop. She just right. practiced. Well, yeah. and I think at any level, if someone's like, do it in a Google Doc, and you're like, look, can I just screen share VS? Code? I know. Now I would like, do that yeah. too. I wish I had done that. I had not. Yeah, I, 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 I wish I had done that, but I had not. Right, which is to say, if you are like a more junior person, I think showing discernment and like, no, listen, mm -hmm. using VS Code is very helpful for these reasons. It shows you a level. It shows a level of like, you know what helps you the most, which I think is actually a positive thing. It doesn't show that you're fussy. It shows that you know what helps you be good at your job. Um, so I think that amount, like, I think that stuff's good being like your whole interview process is broken and I'm like, that's, don't do Maybe that, don't, like, don't that. pull on me, but like, you know, um, but okay. Okay. So then for studying, I almost never in my career have studied for <gasps> interviews, but I knew a lot of the companies I was applying to were using Python and I hadn't really done much Python stuff in like a year or a year and a half. So I did actually for the first mm -hmm. time in a while study Python cause I just hadn't used it in a while. And what I did is I took one of my projects that done an R and be like, you know what, I'm going to spend three hours trying to redo it in Python. And I did. And like that helped me so that when it did come time to those leak coding things, if I did have to do a little bit of Python, I wasn't like totally clueless. I'm mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, group by is group with an underscore, you know, like, like you got indices, like, like, like a little bit of jogging your memory on something you haven't done in a while, I think is good. I think any, like, I'm going to try and learn new things real fast. I'm going to try and learn, you know, um, uh, Apache Spark real fast. Cause mm. I know some companies use it and I don't like, I think that's going to probably be rough. Yeah. Um, but then lastly, on your behavioral interview, and this is maybe not a good answer, but on your behavioral interview study, I did not study behavioral interview questions. What I did was I interviewed at 75 places. So the first few interviews are a little rough because they'd be like, tell me about a time you messed up something. And I'd be like, I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. And then like a, a day later, I think about it I'm like, wait, I should have told the story of blank. And then the next time I interviewed at a place, I saw, you know, so like that one kind of learned, like it kind of built on itself just by interviewing at a bunch of places. But I will say... I don't know, having like a, like I now and know in my head, like what are the five stories I yes. always tell interviews? Like having those locked in your brain somewhere, I think is pretty helpful. Yeah, I was going to say it. I think a lot of stories can be used to answer like multiple questions, right? Whether yeah. it's like talenting time or code. Um, and I, yeah, so I think that, and I will say, I, I have heard that advice before. Um, well, it's not quite like the, but I have heard the advice that, you know, start with places maybe that aren't, you're like, oh my God, the dream company. So you can get sort of those practice reps in, right? Whether it's dusting off being comfortable, you know, like, like, uh, you know, cause you'll just, you'll just, you know, when you actually practice that, you'll be like, oh crap, I gave like a five minute answer. And that should have been a one minute answer or like, oh crap. I like, like you said, right. It's like, oh, I can't, I couldn't think I was put on the spot and I couldn't think of a time or 
when I had a challenge or whatever. So there, there is something to be said for, you know, it's not companies that you'd like, hate, but, but not necessarily starting off with your like, oh my gosh, your dream company is your first interview. Yes. And to the point of like, you try to kind of get like work on it a little bit, like, like kind of like, you know, punch it up. I will say that like, oh my God. So every, every phone screen starts like this. They're like, oh, hi. I'd like, you know, hi, I'm blah, blah, blah. I'm the recruiter here. I'd like, you know, for this call first, I'd like to learn a little bit about you. And then we can tell you about the job and things like that. And so really what they're asking for is, you know, give me the elevator pitch of you. Mm -hmm. So every phone screen and then every interview with every single round and every single person I talked to the very first thing always in an interview was spend two minutes talking about you and if it wasn't in the rare occasion where it wasn't that I'd always do that anyway because it gets mm. people grounded and they ask better questions they know your background so oh my god I have my elevator pitch so down I could do it in my sleep I, I know where the joke lines are in there and the haha like uh wait give your yeah. get, no no hold on give your it? elevator pitch now yeah okay. you said it too yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank people whatever it's our podcast all right yeah, yeah I'm gonna so you got to be like, so can you tell me about yourself? You Hi, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for coming in today to interview. Uh, I'd love to start out with just asking you to tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Jacqueline Nolis. I've been in, you know, I've been in the field for like 15 years. So, you know, I did my undergrad and master's in mathematics, and then I went and became a data scientist in industry. But actually, it wasn't even called data science back then. It was called business analytics. Ha ha ha. Um, and then usually, <laughs> yeah, like that, they laugh. Um, and so I went and I worked for a few years doing forecasting at an e-commerce company. Um, but eventually, I realized that I wanted more technical skills. So I went back and got a doctorate in optimization. So I did that for a few years. And during my PhD, I started working at a boutique consulting firm on the side so it was a group of like five data scientists including me and two business people and we go around helping companies and I like that so much that when I finished my PhD I started doing that full-time so that company then became rolled into a bank consulting company so I was a lead of data science there and then eventually I went to a marketing and sales strategy consulting firm and actually started the data science team it started as just me. As a director, I ended up hiring. I got to the point where there was like eight people on the team. So there was like six data scientists and two managers and me. And I got to this point where like I was leading this whole organization, things like that. But I stopped doing data science. I just sat in meetings. And if you were a CEO or something who was doing the interview with me, I'd be like, and you know how it must feel to have been a technical person and just have your whole job end up as meeting. It's not the best, right? And they laugh like, haha, it's not <laughs> the best. Yes, thank you. And then, uh, so, so I ended up leaving that position. I started consulting on my own full time. So as a freelancer, so I consulted for T-Mobile, for Expedia. Actually at T-Mobile, I helped them start their AI organization. I was the founding data scientist on their AI team. And before that team, they never put a machine learning model in production. And I helped them put their first machine learning models in production. In fact, at one point you could text T-Mobile and cause my code to run. You know, like those models getting hit a million times a day. And then usually the person goes, oh, wow. And I'm like, yeah, isn't that a cool fact? I like telling people that fact. And the, so then like, but then anyway, um, you know, but ultimately consulting, it became, you know, like it's a lot of chaos and up and down. If they were previously, if they told me they'd done some consulting, I'd be like, and you know how that feels, right? And they're like, yeah, I do know how that feels. So they're like, you know how that feels. Um, then I'm like, so I went up and I got a new position. I was the um, head of data science at a data science SaaS company. I ended up becoming the chief product officer there because our customers were data scientists. Um, but ultimately, it got to the point where, like, I really liked that job. But again, I was looking for something new, um, you know, maybe a little bit more hands-on data science. And so now I'm applying to this position. And then, so that's my elevator pitch. But you always end it with, here's what I'm looking for. Because they will always ask you what you're looking for. And so I was like, um, so what I'm looking for now is I want, I'm looking for a position where I get to be, like a, a, like, a tech lead. So I like to be an independent contributor. But I like mentoring. And I like getting my hands dirty. So I'm really looking for like a principal data scientist or tech lead position. Uh, and yeah, I saw your company on LinkedIn. It seemed like it would be a good fit. And that's my elevator speech. Whew. Okay. Woo. Okay. So I have one question about it, which is, I guess it surprised me a little bit. And so I wanted to ask you about it, that you didn't mention, uh, you didn't mention our book or our podcast, but, but more seriously, right? You do a lot of public work. You do, you do talks, obviously the book, but blog posts. So did you ever consider so that's a great that? like what do you think that's relevant um, so for i did not mention? typically because like that speech is already pretty long and to be like oh then i wrote a book like it just feels long oh, yeah, but often fair. that will come up to be like tell <laughs> me about your management styles or like how do you mentor and i'd be like actually i wrote a whole mm. book on that topic you know i do conference talks and things like that and sometimes i'll hold up the book which sometimes it gets a laugh or sometimes gets a like that's not funny like so i don't know i don't know if i recommend doing that but um <laughs> which is just say the conferency kind of stuff i don't necessarily mention but i do think that is a good thing to mention like i think if my speech wasn't so long, I would probably mm -hmm. talk about like, and I like going to conferences and I like blogging. I like making tweets about data science. Yeah. But I think you also point out that 
that can definitely come up in answers to other questions, right? So you're like, oh, tell me about a project when you did blah, blah, blah. And you could be like, yeah, so the, I did this project and like, you know, I actually gave a talk about it yes, in our studio yes, that you can see I would online. do that. I would like, like drop that? work I've done all the time to yeah. the point where actually so, once in a while it became too much to be like, actually, I already have a talk about that thing too. And the interviewer's like, yeah, I got it. You write it, do a lot of talks. Um, but no, I think that's actually a good thing <laughs> to do. And I think maybe the point I wanted to make about the like, I didn't include it in my thing is like, I want to keep that my intro speech to just as tight as possible cover the beats that are important and for me the beats are important are a lot of years of history doing this i've consulted for companies that i've really like like had to work with lots of different companies in lots of different contexts and i have leadership experience and like mentoring experience and like and putting things in production experience those are the beats that are important to me mm-hmm. when you're coming up with your speech emily like maybe the talking in conference and book stuff is more important so you include that more in yours like the point is you're just like Whatever is important to you, include it. Don't include every beat, you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So a little bit of a different talk, but one thing I've been wondering about, you know, speaking of the technical tools, did you ever have an interview where you're like, oh, crap, I have, like, no idea how to do what they're asking. Like, I don't know, it's like a leak code, invert a binary tree or some, you know, esoteric statistics thing. And like, yeah, it did happen. What did you do? And you know, it was embarrassing. The the time it happened the worst was something that was the entire topic of my dissertation, right? So like my whole PhD was on uh, (laughs) integer optimization. And the person asked me a question, asked me very specific (laughs) integer optimization questions. But here's the thing. I did my PhD 10 years ago. So I don't, I haven't used it since. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. listen, I, I basically, I do the advice we say in our book, which is like, give a crude guess. I'm like, listen, I think it's something like this, but I'm not really sure. Because in my case, I say it's not really sure. I haven't really done this stuff in a while. Like, I'd be open with like, why I don't think I know. Or if it's like a weird statistical test. Okay, sure. I'll give you a very concrete example of a time someone asked me a question. I just had no idea. It was an interview with like two people interviewing me at once. So it's question, question. It's going real fast. So I could barely handle it. And then one of the questions, like it was a question about behavioral interview and then suddenly jumped to, what's the difference between a hinge loss and a log log loss or whatever? Yes. And I made that face. You can't see it if you're in the listen. I made that face too of like, I looked to the side and be like, I don't remember. And I said like, listen, honestly, I do not remember what those terms mean, but I'm sure if I stacked overflow and looked up in 10 seconds, I could remember. Oh yeah. It's those things I can explain to you. And they're like, oh no, what I'm asking is the difference between a support vector machine and a logistic regression. How are those different? And I can explain that better. I still don't think my explanation was that great. Because, like, that's just a tough thing to off the cuff. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, look, and a support vector machine is kind of like trying to split two clusters of data by putting the line as far apart from both sides mm-hmm. as it can. Whereas, like, a, you know, or it's like, I think it was like naive face. I don't know, whatever. They're like, Ugh. and like, I kind of explained it, but like, you know, I kind of wiggled my way through. Here's the thing I didn't get that job. But here's the other thing I don't feel mm-hmm. bad about that because I don't know how anyone could have off the cuff necessarily. Like, like, I don't know. I don't think a good data scientist is the person who can off the cuff remember what a hinge loss exactly is. I don't know. So this is kind of one of these things where maybe it's like hubris, but I've really built up a, you know, if I don't get interviewed well, it's the interviewer's fault, not me. And I I don't know if that's true, but it is like psychologically very safe in here. Yeah, that's good. Well, and also I feel like some of it is just like a little bit of luck, right? Maybe that person had just, or like they just come out of, school where they covered that or they just did a project right but that's really more luck than like oh they're, yeah, they're exactly. a better data if that company wants to it. hire a person the person who's the best in the world remembering definitions then good on them go hire that that's not me i'm not great at remembering these definitions off the cuff <laughs> um so yeah i don't know don't don't feel bad i think yeah it definitely happens to to us all and i i, I am sort of with you of I was talking to someone who, who really liked, who had a job and they really liked the interview process for that job. And they said one thing they'd done was they really went in depth to a project specific to that person, right? They say like, hey, what's a recent project you're proud of? And they, they would say like, oh, there's, you know, like a technical project. And they say, oh, you know, whatever, this random forest thing. And then they'd like go into that because that that should be something you're much more comfortable, right? If you've recently used a technical thing and then you can sort of explain or like, oh, tell me about you know, why'd you choose SageMaker, you know, versus this? Or why'd you choose that algorithm? Or what are some of the drawbacks of that, right? Like that, yeah, I think, and is, in more, fact, for is me, much more reasonable. If you have like a project, for me, some of these companies are like, we want you to do a take home, right? Like, like do a take home project where you build, take a data set and you run models on mm. it. And I'm like, listen, I'm interviewing. You know, I've applied to 75 places. I don't have time to do this other company. But look, here's all these projects I've already done and the conference talk. Here's some that are relevant to this company. Pick one you like, and I will talk about that. And that actually worked. So 
I don't know if you're interviewing and you have some of these projects, like one of like you could actually the logical conclusion of what you said is like you can perhaps skip entirely doing take homes. Just offer, be like, hey, listen, instead, would you rather have me present on this cool thing that you can look at the GitHub code for? And I'll talk to you about that. And I think most of the time people would rather hear you talk about something you're passionate about, you know. I did not do any take homes. Does that mean you didn't do any take homes? um, and was there any company that said no? Because I could have, I know some companies really, so, so I think there was something we said for this, uh, like a structured interview process, right? So there's sort of, there, there is research that um, to kind of reduce bias in interviewing. You ask everyone the same questions, right? You have a, you have like a score, sort of a scorecard for the answers. Because uh, that kind of keeps you from, otherwise people are often biased yeah. by like, oh, they golf, I golf, they're from this place, I'm from this place. So anyway, I could see a company being like, no, you know, because we have this rubric that's pretty tailored to this take home. Yeah, so we can't but you just know, do it I think if, a, if the right company asked me to do a take home, I would have. But like, honestly, my my skip kind of went mm. through, and like, I think a lot of the companies did just say present on a topic you know about. Like, do a take home. Like, some of them gave me the option, and when I've been interviewing people, mm-hmm. when I was like the director doing the interview, I would give people mm. the option. Just if you have something you want to talk about, you can do that instead. And a lot of people would take me up on that topic on that offer. So you mentioned earlier that you, uh, you know, you got three offers in the end. And so we have a section of our book that talks about uh, deciding between, you know, and and, uh, two good offers, or in this case, maybe three. So tell me, Jacqueline, did that mean the decision was was super easy because you've written about it and, and you you had that like do we no, provide the perfect decision? <laughs> I got to that point where I'm like, oh, I actually have several very good offers. No. Like they really like if a company got to the point of making me an offer, it was an offer I would be interested in taking. Like any company, I'm like, eh, I'm not really. I like I would have told them. And mm-hmm. maybe again, this is because I knew my my red flags were like if a company didn't wouldn't make me an offer I would be interested in taking I would have said then don't bother interviewing me so your my again your mileage may vary but I knew most of those offers were good so the final three were all very good offers and I opened our book to the point where we say choosing between two offers and it was it I wrote that section and it was like don't try and over optimize this because each offer like you never know what's going to happen if you take the other offer like you never know the counterfactual so just mm-hmm. pick one and kind of go with your heart and don't look back and I said, that's the advice I wrote. And I said, that's not helpful. <laughs> I want to make this. So I did what, so this is <laughs> cheek. I did another thing I could do, which is I called you, Emily. <laughs> which I mean, I think is like, and I think it's that phone call by the time I explained all the different job offers. I'm like, oh, I should take this one. Just explaining it out loud helped me kind of process it. But like, it was a real challenge. I still was mm-hmm. going back and forth to the very end. They were all very good offers. Yeah, and I think it's it's, was challenging because like with yours, it was sometimes it was apples to oranges, right? I think it's easier if it's like, okay, they're all the same, except this one's higher salary. Great. But it's like, well, this one's, you know, remote only. And this one's, you know, has a smaller percent of remote. Like how much, how do I weigh that between this one is more, you know, maybe more stable, et cetera. Right. It's, it's, it's difficult weighing these different factors um, because yeah. Versus just like a cut and dry. Okay. Yeah. And maybe here's an interesting thing I hadn't really thought about until this interview loop is I didn't know what I wanted until the end. Right. Which is to say like, oh, well, this one's all mm. like remote only. And this one's hybrid. Um, this one's a unstable startup. This one's a very established company. We're like, I started the interviewing. I'm like, I don't really know which t- style of job I want. I'm going to go through this interview. And like part of the interview process, like talking to these companies, like I could start to get to a feel for it. I guess to say there is an exploration that happened for me during the job interview. And like part of figuring out what I wanted was just talking to all these companies being like, oh, that does sound kind of fun or like, no, that doesn't. Um, But that just makes it even harder when you get down to the final few where, yes, to your point, they could be totally separate, distinct things that I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I wrote. We wrote a book on this. I don't know. I didn't (laughs) feel thrilled with, you know, my decision making process, but. It's tough. Yeah. No, you're asking me so many questions. I want to ask you you something. (laughs) <laughs> no, no i'm gonna put you yeah no it's an interview it's a one-way no. interview no 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 how are you because no. <laughs> like that's got to be re- like i at least when all this is tough i'm still like well every day i'm making slow progress towards getting another job you are not doing that tell mm-hmm. me how that feels <laughs> yeah so this is really only like the past couple days because otherwise this expert witness work was like fairly busy. I mean, it wasn't like a 40 hour work week, but it was busy enough. I was doing, you know, some hours each day. Um, and so that, that kind of like felt not that different than having a job, right? It's like, okay, I'm using my data science skill in a meaningful way. And I'm corresponding with people about it and I'm getting paid, etc. Um, 
So, and because of that financial cushion, right, I think that definitely took the pressure off of like looking for a job at the same time, right? It's like, okay, but, but now I'm starting this period where like, okay, I don't, that, that work's going quiet for a little bit and I haven't looked for any other type of like consulting work. So I'm just, I'm just chilling. So I don't, I don't know. There definitely is some of that feeling of like, oh my God, will I ever have a job again? Like, what if no one likes me? Like, cause also, cause I don't know, I haven't applied anywhere. So I have no idea. Like, is my rate going to be like yours? Is it like 50% more? Okay. Have you made your resume look good yet? Have you done like the groundwork kind of stuff like that? Um, a little bit. I, I, I have some, um, I tried to get down like some of the projects I'd done, right? Like again, cause I was like the six, you know, like six months from now, I will probably not remember it as well. I mean, my resume, I would say, I think my resume is like, I had added, I, I needed it for this expert witness stuff. So I, I added a little bit to my resume about like stuff I'd done at Warby and I didn't feel like it needed that much additional polishing. So not really. And like, occasionally I like look at LinkedIn, right? I just like try to get a sense of like, okay, vaguely, like how many places are hiring, like remote, you know, and, and, and what kind of jobs, but yeah, I really have not. I've not done, and I haven't done any kind of like this, you know, the studying or whatever, right, of, of brushing it off. So so not really. I haven't really done anything to prep for a job search because okay, I'm, I'm sort of planning for that to be a few Maybe months out, impressed, so. astounded. I don't know where I'm, if it were me in that position, the moment I'm like, oh, I'm a little nervous about this, I go and do the resume. Like I would funnel that anxiety in unhealthy ways towards trying to push the process forward. And I think there's something good about like if you do have some severance if you do have a side thing going on, if you do have like a way to cushion a little i can see the value in being like i'm just gonna take a little bit of time to get my bearings like i think that is a reasonable thing reasonable humans can do but not me yeah and i think it's also been nice for me because you know i'm also doing a lot more travel than i might have done otherwise um like i'm going to my husband is running a bridge camp in california at a really nice resort so i'm like okay i'll come along like why not um and i'm finally like my cousin's wedding in boston and then a couple weeks later in new york so anyway i'm doing stuff that i feel like you know even at places i've had unlimited pto right i usually wouldn't take off like i don't know be like you know quote unquote offer traveling for like two and a half weeks in a month right i probably wouldn't i wouldn't do that like every, you know most months right as i have a lot of so I do think I'm also trying to like take advantage of this time. Um, but that being said, you know, I say all of this, but I also, it, it's, it's also weird. Like it is a little bit of unmoored, right? It's like no longer, you know, it's like, you don't have, you know, your, your, your team that you're working with, or, I mean, imagine it might be a little bit like what it was when you were like freelance consulting, right? Jacqueline It's like, did you have periods where yeah, you, didn't, you weren't worst. working on it? <laughs> like I'm so bad at that. Cause I, <laughs> I, just, I get filled with panic and mm-hmm. I like, it's not like I need work to be happy, but it is nice to have some sort of structure in your day of like, I know. And like, so even like, yeah. you know, on these days during this one where I didn't have any interviews or anything, I try at least make like, okay, today I'm going to go for a bike ride. Like I tried to create that structure. Cause like, otherwise I just kind of go, mm-hmm. Uh, I just kind of sit and stare at a wall and be like, what, what does anyone do anything for? Like, I don't know. It's like, not good. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no. And I, I did talk to someone who had been laid off a couple of years ago when they were younger and like living alone. And they said like, that was quite challenging because like, you know, they said, you know, it's, it's, they just felt purposeless. And I will say for me, I don't know that that will happen sort of because when I have these like travel stuff, but also, like I said, I'm, I'm married, we live in the same house, we have dogs, right? So there is a certain routine, you know, it's like, I still sort of get up the same time he gets up. Um, you know, I, the dogs need to be walked. Um, so, so it's not, but I could certainly see if you are unemployed and you're, you know, you're sort of living alone and you don't have pets, right? It's like, there's nothing, there's no external thing, like giving you that structure, um, that that's challenging. So yeah, it's a little, it's a little unsettling, but, but I am trying to like take advantage, you know, of the time and getting relaxed, but it's so weird. It's a weird feeling of like, I, I almost, I, I still haven't gotten over this, like, almost guilty like oh i'm skeeving off of like even though there's no work for me to do right it feels like i'm playing hooky and so it feels weird it's like well shouldn't there be something like i don't know like an email that comes in or this thing so yeah and so on that note i feel like maybe this is a good time to wrap up two very different perspectives um (laughs) getting through the unemployment yes yes that's fair and i I think i want to reiterate what you said earlier jacqueline that like your feelings are valid not just like your in particular jacqueline but the audience my feelings are valid everyone yeah but the audience you know i think people handle it and whether you want to handle it by 
you know, taking a few of severance or emergency savings and chilling for a bit, or if you want to handle it by like throwing yourself in right away, trying to find something else that's all valid. And I think I will just say, you know, but like we talked about, it's like still try to, you know, you, you know, have, I guess what I say is like, you know, try not to panic so much that you sort of ignore red flags or you, you know, you, you take a job that you're pretty sure you're going to be unhappy with because it's not a good fit, but you just need something. If, if you're able to, I certainly, people who have, you know, visas that are dependent on working, right? Maybe they have, they're, they're the sole breadwinner in their family. They don't necessarily have a lot of savings. Like, obviously there are some situations where maybe you just have to take almost the first thing, but if you're able to, you know, I, I do think it's still worthwhile, even if you're unemployed to like, take a little bit of time in your job search and, and try to figure out what at least has a good chance of being uh, a good fit. Yes, I think that's great advice. Yeah. All right, so that's our show for this uh, for the week. Uh, thanks for listening to our bonus episode. Um, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Um, and if you have a question or feedback, you can send it to podcast at bestbook.cool. Uh, another reminder, you can buy a copy of our book at bestbook.cool and use the code BUILDBOOK40%. That's 40% symbol for 40% off. Our theme song is by the extremely funny Matt Bouchel. And thanks to our publish- publisher Manning for helping our book exist. And may you be employed or unemployed at the exact level you want. <laughs> yeah.